Last year, I had the opportunity to go to Israel uh, for a few weeks, and one of the one of the interesting things, if you go to a place like that, I mean, really all over the world, there's different places where where people generally regard those places as holy. I mean, I remember one one particular place is uh, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and uh, and what happens there is this uh, allegedly this church that's over the tomb uh, of Jesus, and so people. I mean, we went we didn't stand in line at the tomb, but you can stand in line at the tomb. I mean, but the line was long. I mean, it was like hours. It's just serpentine back and forth, back and forth in this huge chapel space. And eventually you can get in to get this little peek at, uh, at the tomb. And uh, I'll go ahead and save you the trip and save you the time and effort. Uh, when you get there, it's empty. So surprise, surprise, right? But it's just like people would line up for hours to get a look at, at just an empty place of rock. And people would pray and they'd, they'd kiss they'd kiss it if they could i mean it's it's a little strange when you think about it but this idea that that there are places that are holy the idea of holy place so you'll recognize we're not in a church building today Uh, i took i thought i'd bring you to to a place that uh, many people uh, let's face it in the south consider to be a holy place that's a that's a football field Um, a lot of us are kind of excited hope that we get to watch some football this year especially college football but uh, i brought you here this is this is where i played uh, football in high school and, uh, and, and, you know, if you've ever played football, you ever been to a football game, there's a certain kind of atmosphere when you're at that place. I mean, anytime you can get thousands of people gathered in a place who have a shared vision, a shared direction, they're, they're pulling for some kind of particular outcome, there's a certain amount of power in that. You know what I mean? So I remember one particular game uh, that we had my senior year. I was, pretty, I was pretty okay. I was an okay player on a really good team. And so it was my senior year. Um, we were playing for the conference championship. It was right here. It was against Tennessee High. And, and somewhere on the field uh, behind me, um, it, it was fourth and one. There was like a minute and a half left in the game. And if we went for it and got it, then, uh, then the game was over. And we'd be able to run out of the clock. If we didn't get it, then that Tennessee High would have a chance to score on us and, and maybe, maybe win. And so it was a big play. And I remember lining up and just looking up in the stands. Thousands of people here. I mean, this stadium packed out can probably hold, I mean, three to 5,000 at least. Somebody can fact check me on that one. But I mean, thousands of people. And, and it was packed this night. I mean, you could feel it in the atmosphere. There's something powerful about that. Um, sometimes now, like, I'll come back here and I'll run. I don't live far away from the high school, and so I'll come back here and I'll run on the track. And, uh, and it's interesting um, because uh, it's a lot different because it's, it's empty. The atmosphere's not the same, and things seem to be a lot different. You'll, you'll know what this is like if you ever visited a house that you used to live in you ever done that before? Maybe you drive by a place where you used to live and it, and it just is different, right? It's like the same place, but, but something's missing. We're talking about the story of Jacob today. We're wrapping up our time with him. And, and, and this is an important idea because it plays a really big role in his story today. And so if you'll think back to last week, we, we finished up uh, this time when Jacob was in this village of Shechem. And, and this guy named Shechem, he took Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and he raped her. And then he, he took her and he married her. I mean, it's a violent story. And in retaliation, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, they killed all the men in the village. Brutal story. Go back and watch the sermon from last week if you want to be filled in on what happened there. But um, we hear this conversation at the end of this event, after like so much bad stuff had happened, because the author of Genesis just puts it like this. He says that an outrageous thing had been done in Israel, a thing that should not be done. 
And then all these different people have all sorts of different reactions. And they do different things in response to what happened. And, uh, and then they have this conversation. So we'll pick up our story back there. This is in Genesis 34, 30. Um, this is where we start. It says, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Simeon and Levi, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Which, of course, you know, the answer to that is no. And that's where we stopped last week. But something really interesting happens when you look at the text, because in the original text, guess what? There's no chapter divisions. There's no verse divisions. There's just the story. And so what's happening here is Jacob is having a conversation with his two sons about what they did after the fact. And now, I think this is important for us to keep in mind. This is a conversation that they should have had before they reacted. Think about that. How often do you have conversations after the fact with someone and say, oh man, you shouldn't have done that or you shouldn't have done this, when really you should have had your conversation about how you were going to respond before you responded. That's why scripture says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry. Right? You don't want to just respond, but sometimes we do. And so maybe we want to just take that moment and pause, but everything for them. You've been placed there. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's in your school, in your classroom. Maybe it's just in your job or in your family. You've been placed there for a purpose. Remember who you are. Remember why you're there. And remember where you are. Three things, very just easy keys to hold on to that Jacob gives receives from God um, when he goes back to Bethel. Of course, all of this makes me ask a question, right? Maybe you were wondering this too. I'm, I'm sure you were. Um, what happens to Bethel? Right? Like, the, so this is where we're going to end Jacob's story because uh, Jacob, of course, his story continues through his sons, right? Because Jacob is Israel and Israel has 12 sons. 12 sons are 12 tribes. 12 tribes go to Egypt. 12 tribes in Egypt get set free from captivity in Egypt. This guy named Moses shows up and God does a powerful work there. And the rest of the story, as they say, is history. And so this is where we're going to leave Jacob behind at Bethel. But you might be wondering, like, what happens to Bethel in the New Testament? Right? Because maybe you're like, you know, you've read through the New Testament before, maybe you haven't. Um, and you're just like, what? What happens? I don't seem to remember Jesus ever going there. Like, and he went to a lot of places. He goes to Jericho, um, he goes to Jerusalem, he's all throughout the Galilee, like, but he never goes to Bethel? For such an important and, and significant place in the Old Testament, we don't hear about it in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, I mean, you might think that, like, maybe it just doesn't exist anymore. Well, that's not true. You see, there's this Jewish historian named Josephus. He wrote at the end of the first century, so just, you know, a couple generations, really a generation after Jesus. And he talks about how the Roman general Vespasian sacked the city of Bethel when, he, when the Romans conquered Israel and, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in, like, the late 60s, early 70s. That, that Vespasian destroyed the city. So we know it existed during the time of Jesus. So... What gives? Funny how with the presence of God because of what God did in Wilmore, Kentucky. I mean, it's incredible, right? See, revival always starts with repentance because it starts with this recognition that I don't have it all together and I need to leave behind the Shechems in my life and I need to go back to those Bethels. And so we hear that in the story of Jacob as well. And so what he does, he takes his whole family. You get that? He told his whole family to leave it behind. It wasn't just Jacob having this isolated religious experience. It's about more than just you. It's about the people around you, in your family, in your sphere of influence. And uh, that didn't happen. 
You know why? People woke up for a minute because the alarm went off. People got scared because alarms do that. They wake you up. But you know what happened? We hit snooze. And a lot of people drifted back off to sleep. Maybe you recognize the alarms going off in your life. Maybe you see the alarms going off in your family. Now's the time to get up and turn off your alarm. God speaks. God jumps into the conversation. He says, go back to Bethel. You see, Jacob and his sons were facing a particular problem, and their problem was, what do we do about what happened to our sister, and what do we do about the people around us who are causing all sorts of problems and are just um, totally different kind of lifestyle and way of life? What do we What do we do? And God's answer to Jacob is to go to Bethel. (laughs) Go to Bethel. Go back to the place where he first met. Because if you remember back in Jacob's story, it's that um, he's living with his parents up until he's about 40 years old, and then he finally is sent by his parents on his way to find a wife in his ancestral homeland. And so on his way, he stops in this place called Bethel, and he has this great vision from God where he really has this personal encounter Uh, with God and a conversation with him. And God gives him this promise that I will make you a blessing to the nations. You will have a great family. The promise that your your grandfather Abraham, the promise to your father Isaac, I will fulfill that promise through you, Jacob. It's this incredible moment in Jacob's life and things start to change after this where he's awakened to the presence and the reality of God and his kingdom. And so in response to this, in response to after all that stuff that happened, God tells Jacob, go back to Bethel. Go back to the place where we first met. Go back to that important place at the beginning. Um, I think that's important for us, uh, especially sometimes when we have a, a bit of a problem. Right? When sometimes maybe you run into a place where you've sinned pretty egregiously and, and you don't know how to move forward in that. Or, or maybe where, where things kind of fall apart and you don't know what next step to take. Or, or maybe it's just like you've been in the middle of a global pandemic and you don't really know what to do. God's invitation is to go back to Bethel. Go back to the place where you first met him. Go back to that time in your heart and your mind and your body and your soul where you were connected with him and had a powerful experience of his presence. Go back to that place. That's the invitation. See, what God is offering Jacob, he's offering him revival. And that sounds like a really religious word. It's been used in all sorts of really religious, churchy ways. But revival at a very basic level is the idea of something being brought back to life that used to be alive, but it's now dead. (laughs) It's revive, to be brought back to life, revival. Jacob needed revival. His family needed revival. See, revival is necessary because sometimes people who have been awake, they tend to fall back asleep. Honestly, it happened to me this morning. I, uh, I, I woke up. I was feeling good. I went to bed early last night. I got downstairs. I, I, I made a cup of coffee. I went and sat downstairs, and I was praying and as I start my prayer time usually in the Psalms and I got through about like the first half of the first Psalm and then I woke up. (laughs) That ever happened to you? And then I was like, oh gosh, man, what's going on? And then I started reading again and then, you know, I read about a couple more verses and then I woke up again. And I was like, man, what is going on? So I set, set, set an alarm on my watch, lay back down, took a quick snooze, got back up and finished my prayer in the morning. Um, but sometimes it's easy to fall back asleep. I had a roommate in college at West Point who, who was, he was a chronic snoozer. Now, I know some of y'all do this, and uh, it's annoying. It's not a problem if you're alone in your house, but if you have anyone else in your room, it's super annoying. So you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like he'd set his alarm. Let's just say we need to be downstairs at 630. 
So he'd set his alarm at six, knowing that it took him, you know, 10 minutes to get ready and, and then we'd be ready to go. So he set his alarm at six, go off. Everyone else would be like, oh man, whew, okay, time to get up. You know what this guy would do? He'd reach over, hit snooze. He'd go back to sleep for like three minutes and then the alarm would go back off. And you know what he'd do? He'd hit that snooze button again and then he'd go back to sleep for a couple more minutes. And then you know what happened? That alarm would go off and then he'd hit snooze. And that would happen so many times. And honestly, it's really annoying. Like set your alarm, one, maybe snooze once. Okay, I'll give it to you, but, but get up. Eventually you just gotta wake up, right? Like, and, and I think that's a lesson for us in the world today is like in April, in March and April, that alarm was going off. And I saw so many people on social media and other places just talking to people who were like, oh man, we gotta, we gotta get serious about life. Now's the time we gotta, we gotta think about church. I, I'm, the first place I'm gonna go back to is I'm going to church. Well, now it's August and uh, that didn't happen. You know why? People woke up for a minute because the alarm went off. People got scared because alarms do that. They wake you up. But you know what happened? We hit snooze, and a lot of people drifted back off to sleep. Maybe you recognize the alarms going off in your life. Maybe you see the alarms going off in your family. Now's the time to get up and turn off your alarm. Don't hit snooze. A good story about my roommate, though. Eventually, he did break that habit. You know what he had to do? He put his phone on the other side of the room so that when it went off, he had to get out of bed to go get it. Maybe now's the time to get up and get out of bed and go turn off the alarm and get about your day. It's time to wake up. It's time for revival. And that's what we see in Jacob's life too, is that it's that time for revival. But, but the interesting thing is that that only happens, that place of revival, it only happens when we, we return to God, when we come back to Him. Jacob had to leave Shechem and go back to Bethel in order to experience that revival. And it's important for us too. So whether it's personal or whether it's in a church or whether it's in a region or a nation, um, it only happens when we return to God. And there's a word that we use for that. That word of returning to God is, it's, a, it's again a, a word that we've heard used in a lot of contexts. It's repent. To turn away from doing things our way and to turn back to God. To, to, to leave behind whatever place we've been and just to come home to God and to a relationship with Him. Uh, this is what we're told. In Genesis 35, it says, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let's go up to Bethel, where I'll build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of distress, and who's been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns around them, so that no one pursued them. You, you catch that? Before they could go back to Bethel, they had to leave Shechem. They're still in that place, still in that place of sin, still in Shechem, this place of violence, this place of injustice, this place of lust, this place of, of murder, this place of guilt, this place of greed, this place of vengeance, this place of idolatry. They had to leave Shechem behind in order to go up to Bethel. Revival never comes in your own life or in a bigger picture in the church or in the nation. It never comes apart from repentance. It never comes apart from turning away from this and coming home to God. Um, you may have heard, I'm, I've talked about this before, but you may remember the story of the Asbury Revival. This happened in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky, that great metropolis, Wilmore, Kentucky. It's just a little sleepy town outside of Lexington. 
uh, Asbury College at the time and Asbury Seminary today still, they're in Wilmore, Kentucky, and it was February 1970. Um, it was a normal chapel service happening at the college. Um, the professor who'd been leading the service got up to close things out, just a normal post-lunch chapel. And, uh, and as he got up to close things out, a student in the auditorium stood up. And this student then confessed to the whole student by me, a thousand people, because chapel attendance was compulsory at the college, and small Christian college, and, and he confessed some of his sins in his life. He confessed that he cheated on some exams, that he'd been portraying himself as like a really righteous person, but in reality, he, he wasn't. It was a show. Uh, he stood up and he confessed his sin, and, and then he just sat back down. And the professor, like, very wisely just didn't really say anything. And he waited, like, a couple seconds, and then another student stood up and just shared some things that were on her heart that she'd been struggling with, and she confessed her sin. And then she sat back down. And then another student stood up on the other side of the auditorium. And you can guess what happened. Before long, the professor said, hey, why don't you all just come up to the microphone? And, and before long, there was a line. And that one-hour chapel service turned into an afternoon. They canceled classes for the rest of the afternoon. They told people, hey, we're just going to stay here. God's doing something. Um, and that one-hour chapel service that turned into an afternoon at chapel service um, went in through the night. And then uh, what started out as just this little sleepy one-hour chapel service turned into an eight-day chapel service. For eight days, there were people in that auditorium praying and worshiping and confessing and seeking the presence of God for eight days. A mentor and friend of mine who, who grew up in Appalachia, Virginia, he actually got saved because some people from Asbury College came to his coal mining town of Appalachia, Virginia, and they shared the gospel at his church. And he got saved. He was a student in college at the time. And, and I mean, he had a radical encounter with the presence of God because of what God did in Wilmore, Kentucky. I mean, it's incredible, right? See, revival always starts with repentance because it starts with this recognition that I don't have it all together and I need to leave behind the Shechems in my life and I need to go back to those Bethels. And so we hear that in the story of Jacob as well. And so what he does, he takes his whole family. You get that? He told his whole family to leave it behind. It wasn't just Jacob having this isolated religious experience. It's about more than just you. It's about the people around you, in your family, in your sphere of influence, in your workplace. It's about everybody going back to Bethel. And Jacob takes the whole family back, and he builds an altar. And now, so just ask the question, right, why an altar? If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that sometimes the altars in the Old Testament were used for ritual sacrifice. Uh, but particularly in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's just not the case. Most of the time when they build an altar, they build an altar to remember. A place to remember that God did something in a particular place at a particular time. As a way to worship, as a way to praise Him, they built an altar. And so that's what Jacob does here. And we hear that in this place at Bethel, God reminds Jacob of some things. God reminds Jacob of everything that they've been through together. We're told that God said to him, he said, your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob. He said, you will be called Israel. So you will no longer be called the grasper, the striver, the reacher. You'll be called the one who struggles with God. He reiterated this promise Jacob had forgotten. And this is this, so he named him Israel. So number one, if you're taking notes, which I'm assuming you are, I mean, I can't see you, but I'm just assuming you're vigorously taking notes on what I'm saying. Number one is you need to remember who you are. When you come back to this place of revival to get there and to you got to repent. And then number one is you got to remember who you are and whose you are. Jacob had to remember that he wasn't Jacob. 
God had already changed his name. He said, you are no longer the grasper. You are the one who struggles with God. And yet he still went by Jacob. He said, no, 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 Jacob, I gave you a new name. Your name is Israel. You are not the grasper anymore. Leave that identity behind. You have a new name now. So number one, you got to remember who you are and whose you are. God continues and he says, I am God Almighty. And so I say, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. Remember your identity. And number two, you got to remember your mission. You have a mission. You've been given a task. You have a purpose to your life. Right? Jacob's purpose is to, to be the father of a great nation. Your purpose is to reflect the image of God into the world, right? It, it's to be, as the scriptures say, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That on the one hand, our purpose is to worship God and to praise Him. And on the other hand, it's to reflect His praise, His worship, and His love into the world around us. Jesus explains it like this. He said, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, to stand in that gap in between, to love God and then to love your neighbor, to worship God and then reflect that praise back into the world around you. Remember your identity, remember your mission, remember your purpose. And then the third thing, God continued, he said, this land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at that place where he had talked with him. So remember your identity, remember your purpose, and then the third thing is remember your place. <laughs> You've been placed here at a specific time and a specific place for a specific reason. Like right here, wherever you are, I mean, you've been put there, strategically placed by God. You have people around you in your life who, who don't know Him, who are struggling with things, who, who need to know that there is a God who loves them, who would die for them, who would give up everything for them. You've been placed there. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's in your school, in your classroom. Maybe it's just in your job or in your family. You've been placed there for a purpose. Remember who you are. Remember why you're there. And remember where you are. Three things, very just easy keys to hold on to that Jacob gives and receives from God um, when he goes back to Bethel. Of course, all of this makes me ask a question, right? Maybe you were wondering this too. I'm, I'm sure you were. Um, what happens to Bethel? Right? Like, the, so this is where we're going to end Jacob's story because uh, Jacob, of course, his story continues through his sons, right? Because Jacob is Israel and Israel has 12 sons. 12 sons are 12 tribes. 12 tribes go to Egypt. 12 tribes in Egypt get set free from captivity in Egypt. This guy named Moses shows up and God does a powerful work there. And the rest of the story, as they say, is history. And so this is where we're going to leave Jacob behind at Bethel. But you might be wondering, like, what happens to Bethel in the New Testament? Right? Because maybe you're like, you know, you've read through the New Testament before, maybe you haven't. Um, and you're just like, what? What happens? I don't seem to remember Jesus ever going there. Like, and he went to a lot of places. He goes to Jericho. Um, he goes to Jerusalem. He's all throughout the Galilee. Like, but he never goes to Bethel? For such an important and, and significant place in the Old Testament, we don't hear about it in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, I mean, you might think that like maybe it just doesn't exist anymore. Well, that's not true. You see, there's this Jewish historian named Josephus. He wrote at the end of the first century. So just, you know, a couple generations, really a generation after Jesus. And he talks about how the Roman general Vespasian sacked the city of Bethel when, he, when the Romans conquered 
Israel and, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in like the late 60s, early 70s. That, that Vespasian destroyed the sea. So we know it existed during the time of Jesus. So what gives? Funny you should ask. I, see, I knew you would. Um, here's what happened. That, that nation that came from Jacob eventually um, had a king. Remember the scripture said that kings will be numbered among your descendants, that promise that God gave him. And, and eventually there is a king, uh, that great king who unifies the nation of Israel, David. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon builds this great temple in Jerusalem, this great temple that would become known as the house of God. Um, Solomon builds a temple. He was considered one of the, I mean, the wisest person who lived. He had incredible wealth. He had an incredible harem, a thousand women. Uh, he had all the horses and the chariots and gold and silver and anything that someone could possibly conceive of asking for. Except for all the great things that Solomon was, he apparently wasn't a great dad because his son um, was kind of an idiot. Like, sorry for being blunt, like he blew it. Um, he, he managed to alienate so many people so quickly that not very long into his time as a king, um, the entire kingdom fell apart. And so you have this northern part that splits off and the southern part that stays with the kingdom, the line of David, this kingdom of Judah. But it's very small. The northern kingdom would retain the name of Israel. And that king, the king who came over that nation, was this guy named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam had a problem. is that um, the temple of God, the house of God, was in Jerusalem which was still under the control of the kings in the line of David. Um, and he didn't want that, because like, what if people went back there and then they realized like, things are pretty good in Jerusalem and maybe I'll just stay? And so he had a problem, and this is what Jeroboam did. It says, Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam, after seeking advice, made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Just trust me. Uh, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One of them he set up in Dan, and the other he set up in Bethel. And this thing, Scripture says, became a sin. Jeroboam made a golden calf, and he set it up in Bethel. Bethel was this, of course, great place. I mean, well-known to the people of his day is this place where God had showed up. It was a holy place, wasn't it? And what Jeroboam did is he set up this golden calf, and he established false worship. He said, this calf is an idol who represents the gods, plural, who delivered you from Egypt. Worship these gods, he says, at this holy place of Bethel. And he instituted a, a priesthood there, a false priest. They weren't Levites. They weren't trained, just priests that he had trained to worship in this pagan way. And so he does, he establishes a pagan religion at this holy place in Bethel. And the scriptures say that this thing became a sin. Now, all that is important, I think, for us, because it gets this idea that I brought up at the very beginning. What, what makes a place holy? And what makes it significant? Um, you see, I brought you here for this reason. I mean, here, like right now. And I shared at the beginning, is that when this place is empty, it feels a lot different than when it's packed full of people, right? What's different? The presence, right? So what makes this place special? Because like I'm standing here right now and honestly, like, got to be honest, doesn't feel that special. What makes it special, right? Sure, memories, but it's the presence. So what makes holy places holy? Think about that. See, too many of us, we think that it's all about the place, right? 
We think it's all about the place, but, but what if it's not? What if it's about the presence? You see, what made Bethel a holy place? It didn't stay that way, right? It was a holy place in the time of Jacob and it was a holy place for generations after. And then eventually it stopped being a holy place and became a place of sin and idolatry. What changed? So remember the word Bethel. It's a Hebrew word. It's a compound word made up of two words. That's what compound means. The first is Beth, Bet, house. The second is El, God. Beth, El, the house of God. Bethel, the house of God. See, what too many people forget is that we think that what makes the holy place holy is the place. We think that what makes Bethel, Bethel is the Beth. It's the house. When in reality, what makes Bethel, Bethel is the L. It's the God. What makes a holy place holy is the holiness of the presence of God. It's not about the place. Place is important, sure. But it's not about the place. It's about the presence of the living God that inhabits a place. It's about the presence of the living God that inhabits a people. And the reason that I think that's so important for us today is that we find ourselves with a lot of empty stadiums, don't we? <laughs> like, what's happened over the last few months? I mean, stadiums, schools, churches, buildings, empty, empty, empty. What gives? What do we do? I think now as much as ever, we have to remember that it's not about the place. It's about the presence. And for us as a church, it's not about the building. It's about the presence of God among us as his people. Psalm 22, a Psalm of David says that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. God is enthroned on the praises of his people. When people, any number of people, they gather together and they turn their hearts to God and worship, God is there. He is present. You don't need to go to a holy place. You just need some people with his presence, and they make that place holy. What, what happens in Exodus 3 when Moses is standing in front of a burning bush, and God says to Moses, he says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. What made the ground holy? It wasn't that particular plot of ground. It probably had, I mean, Moses was tending sheep. You know what sheep do? They leave behind sheep droppings. We'll say that in a nice way. And Moses took off his feet. Why? The ground wasn't holy because the ground was holy because of God. When Joshua, the same thing happens to him. He's standing before the commander of the Lord of Heaven's armies, and he says to him, he says, Joshua, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. It's not the ground. It's about the presence of God. When Jesus goes up a mountain and he takes some of his disciples with him, he's transfigured before them. What makes that place holy is not the mountain. It's the presence of God. When you go to the to the tomb of Jesus, what makes that place holy at any point in human history is not the fact that it's just a piece of rock. It doesn't matter. It's the presence of the living God there. And guess what? The tomb is empty. There has been a power unleashed to the world through the people of God. We as a church, we've been sent out into the world, not to just gather back in our buildings. That's like what we're so concerned about, right? That's the question I get more than anything else. People like, honestly, people ask me all the time, like rarely a day goes by. I mean, at least a few times a week where someone's like, hey, when we, uh, when we get back to church, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know when things are going to go back to normal. I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist. Like, I don't know when the world's going to go back to normal. I don't know when government restrictions are going to be lifted. I don't know when things that the way they used to be are going to go back to the way that they, they were. I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't have those answers. Um, but what I do know is that the presence of God was never tied to a place. 
It was never about a building. It was never about a particular plot of ground. It was always about the presence of God among the people. That's what makes it special. And I think this is the good news for us. Um, is that for everyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who trusts Him, anyone who, who, who is surrendered to Him, who follows Him, uh, Scripture tells us that like we have been given His Holy Spirit. His Spirit dwells in us. For those who believe in Jesus, you have received the gift of His Spirit. And if you have the presence of God with a couple other people, you know what that makes you? That makes you His house. Paul put it like this. He said, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, plural. That means like when you gather with a couple other people, you together, you are the house of God. You are Bethel. You carry his presence into a broken and hurting world. Remember who you are. Remember your mission and your purpose. Remember your place. And know that you have been given the greatest thing that you can offer anyone, which is the presence of God. As you trust Him, you receive the power of His Holy Spirit. His Spirit lives in you, and you can live out of that place in the course of your daily life to bring the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven just as you go about your life following Him, trusting Him, and living out of His will. That is what I do know. And that's good news. And so I'd just like to pray for you today as we close out as we close out this time with Jacob, as we, we close out our time together, just to remember that it's not about the place. It's not the place that makes it holy. It's the presence of God that makes it holy. It's not about the building. It's about the people. And that's incredibly good news for us because you know where there are a lot of people who need Jesus? Like, look around you. <laughs> Maybe look on the sofa beside you. Maybe look to your next-door neighbor. Maybe look down the street. Look in your office place. Look in your school. Look... Uh, at those people who you're in that Zoom meeting with, those people, they, they need the presence of God too. And the good news is that you've been given this gift. You've been sent out in the world to carry that gift with you. Um, and it really doesn't matter where you are. That when you join together with the people of God, man, incredible things can happen. And He sends you into the world to do things um, that will change those people in those places. And so I'd like to pray for you today. Uh, if you would just bow your heads, your hearts open, your hands up, and let's turn to God in prayer. Um, Father, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to gather together today. I thank you for um, that assurance and that promise of your presence with us, that you will be with us always, even to the very end of the age, that, that uh, what makes these places in our lives so important and so significant is not just the place. Like we, we know that those are important, but Father, we're thankful that those are important because you are there with us. We thank you for the gift of that presence. and. Father, we pray that we'd have eyes that see the people around us who need to know you, that we would, we would have wisdom and a mind to remember our identity, to remember who we are and whose we are, that you would give us eyes to see the mission that you place before us, that we'd see the people in our lives who need discipling, that we'd see the people in our lives who don't know you and who need prayer, we, we see the people in our lives who just need to be shown love in the name of Jesus. You'd help us to remember our mission that you'd help us to remember our place, to know that you have put us in a spot, not a specific geographic coordinate, but in relationships with other people. And it's out of those relationships, more than real estate, that you will move and work and change lives and redeem them uh, for your kingdom. 
We thank you for this gift and we thank you for your spirit with us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining us today. If there's anything that I can do for you, please do reach out and let us know. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to our email list. Join our Facebook group. A couple easy steps for you to take today. If you have any questions about the message or any questions about um, anything that we talked about today, please do reach out on one of those mediums and uh, media and let us know how we can serve you. So uh, please know that I'm praying for you, that everything is going to be okay. God is with you, and if God is for you, then who can stand against you? Um, praying for you. Y'all have a great week. Make a great day. I'll catch you here next week.